0: This is a WTOP original podcast
1: from podcast one
2: previously on colors. So you hear that voice every week on the show. Well, you're not just going to hear that voice doing the same old thing. You're going to hear her talking about this.
1: It's so simple, Mm. and and people don't consider that when it comes to issues of, of race, discrimination, marginalization, they're the big things they think about. They think of violence, they think of oppression, they think of inequity, but I don't think most people think of loneliness.
2: That's the incomparable Hillary Howard.
1: Coming up in this episode of Colors. These
3: massive populations of people who, uh, by ripple effect, from you know, the way the United States responded to September 11th, had you know, saw their lives just completely upended in all sorts of ways. And, and a fraction of those people wound up, uh, ironically or not, as
2: American citizens. Abigail Houseloaner is a roving national correspondent with The Washington Post. She writes on subjects ranging from racial justice to Islam, to immigration, the coronavirus pandemic, and political extremists. Her latest just dropped. It's called... New Americans.
3: One thing I did sort of hear consistently from folks is that that refugee resettlement groups, um, you know, didn't really prepare them for the for the racism and and for the for the sort of cultural reality of this country.
1: That's coming up in this episode of Colors. Simmering racial tensions.
2: Segregation now and tomorrow and forever. Fighting injustice. I have a dream. Conflict. Booming. Don't you Brutality exposed. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. The search for solutions starts here. From
1: WTOP in Washington, DC. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America.
0: Check the mic and make sure it sounds right, boys.
3: Sara Kamali. I'm a first-generation American whose parents were born in Afghanistan.
1: My name is Juan Pablo Sanchez. I was born in Medellin, Colombia, and therefore I identify as Hispanic and or Latino.
3: My name is Aya Sadik I am Middle Eastern. I'm Palestinian.
2: And I'm JJ Green. And I'm black. And this is Colors. On this episode of Colors... Abigail Houseloner with The Washington Post is joining us. She's a roving national correspondent, and she writes on subjects ranging from racial justice to Islam to immigration, the coronavirus pandemic and political extremism. She's covered the Middle East as a foreign correspondent. And she's worked as a bureau chief for The Post in Cairo. She's covered wars and revolutions, as well as culture and politics in Egypt, Libya, Iraq, Gaza, Yemen, Afghanistan, Sudan, Russia, and beyond. Abigail, welcome.
3: Thank you for having me.
2: You just wrote a piece called New Americans. And a part of the reason why I was so interested in talking to you, aside from the fact that it's a very well-put-together piece, it shows your journalistic chops. Thank you for doing it. But it's also because right now the U.S. is getting some new residents. A lot of people are coming here from Afghanistan, and we welcome them. You know, Colors is all about inclusion. So what we'd like to do is to talk to you a little bit about what you learned. You talked to a lot, of, a lot of folks who've come here uh, as refugees, and particularly Afghans. Uh, And you did some some reporting on what they're facing here. And of course, obviously, race is a big issue for us. But I'd first like to ask you what some of your key takeaways were from your reporting.
3: Well, I sort of came at this story. um, I I started reporting it actually early in the summer. Uh, So before the fall of Kabul, before this most recent kind of wave of evacuees from Afghanistan. And I, I was actually thinking about this anniversary of September 11th and thinking about some of the stories that are, have always been kind of first in my mind, uh, as a former Middle East reporter. Um, but I, I think less so for a lot of Americans still, even 20 years later. And that is, uh, these massive populations of people who, uh, by ripple effect from the way the United States responded to September 11th had, you know, saw their lives just completely upended in all sorts of ways. And, and a fraction of those people wound up, uh, ironically or not, as American citizens. Um, and, And so this is sort of a story about all of the about the Iraqis and the Afghans uh, who ended up fleeing their countries after the U.S. invasions and uh, wound up uh, by luck of the draw here um, and sort of settling into that new identity and and all of the sort of paradoxes and ambivalence that comes with it. Um, I think that the biggest takeaway for me um, that that I think is important for readers I want readers to understand is is ambivalence this idea I I think we often think of the United States as this jackpot right and that anyone who comes here should be grateful and that gratitude is is all that that you get to experience um and and one of the sort of most poignant things about from the folks who I I spoke with um Is that, you know, it's not that simple. It's that, you know, it's that no one, no one wants to flee their homes. Um, No, no one wants to abandon their families or the lives that they knew. And that, you know, whatever we may think about, you know, dictatorships and poverty and, you know, some of the various horrible things uh, about life in Iraq and Afghanistan now and before uh, the invasions you know, home is also home for people. And I don't, you know, I think we maybe discount that sometimes in, in the way that we think about the United States as this golden land of, yeah. of opportunity.
2: Yeah, we've certainly learned in the last, this year, that it is not. And, you know, some of that took place on January 6th, some of it leading up to January 6th. And there've been many other things that have taken place since then, uh, including what what's, what's happened in the last 25 days or so in Afghanistan, um, you start this piece off with something that was really very poignant. I just want to read a piece of it from the outside. Farhad Yusuf Zai is living the American dream. Seven years after he fled Afghanistan for the U.S. with his wife, their daughter and six suitcases. Yusuf Zai has achieved success in his adopted home. He runs his own insurance business in Sacramento, employing several Afghan immigrants. His daughter just started ninth grade and speaks better English than he does. Just last month, Yusuf Zai closed on a five-bedroom home. A dream come true, especially for an immigrant, he said. But lately, all he can think about is betrayal. Pick it up from there, would you?
3: Yeah, um, Farhad Yusuf Zai is, um, I mean, really an incredible... Man, I, I really enjoyed talking to him and he, you know, he he did me the the incredible service and us, I think the incredible service of sharing his his thoughts and feelings and reflections uh, with me about the past 20 years in his life. And he, you know, when I met him actually in in I guess it was July, uh, he was already very much grappling with this sense of betrayal and. Um, Betrayal by the United States, Um, you know, he he's glad and grateful for the life that he has here um, and for the success that he's had and for the opportunities that, you know, the United States affords to his daughter. Um, Mm -hmm. But he is he's bitter about what happened in Afghanistan, what's still happening there. You know, he he feels like promises were made to to Afghans. Um, And that opportunities were missed, um, that things were mishandled, mistakes were made by by the Americans, by the international community, uh, by Afghans themselves, Um, you know, and and with the like like many Afghan Americans, you know, he feels like the withdrawal, the way it was done um, and, you know, the way the way it was handled and also the way it was talked about. Uh, by U.S. officials, um, really just sort of left them hanging in the yeah. dust. Yeah,
2: yeah. That 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 is really hard to to swallow. I am certain of that because, you know, you write beautifully in the story about the nuances of their new life and the other people in the story. There are many of them. Their new lives um, in in America, which as you said was supposed to be that golden city on the hill. But you know, now he's bitter. Other people are bitter. And, you know, one of the things, and particularly I want to talk to you about this race piece, because I often say I work at the intersection of race and national security. Being a national security Mm -hmm. correspondent, I do that for a living. I get paid to do that. This, I don't. I do this because of my experience as an African-American in this country and knowing and understanding how race impacts me and impacts other people. And the thing that I'm really interested in hearing from you is how these folks are positioned in this country. How was Yousafzai? How are other people who have come here or are just getting here positioned to deal with what's coming or has already come to them? Are these episodes of racism that's directed at them?
3: You know, one thing I've found in my reporting is that, you know, there's there's this huge variance, uh, not in the racism experienced, because it seems, you know, universally um folks I spoke to have experienced racism in some form or another, but the variance in the way different individuals uh, you know, process it, think about it, respond to it, uh, are prepared for it. Um, you know, and you know, part of it I think depends on on community. Um one thing I did sort of hear consistently from folks is that, that refugee resettlement groups, um, you know, didn't really prepare them for the, for the racism and, and for the, for the sort of cultural reality of this country. Um, And, and, and that's, you know, I think not necessarily a, a, you know, a intentional, I don't think it's an intentional fault of the resettlement agencies. You know, these are, nonprofits that are often extremely overburdened but you know that they they felt when they arrived unprepared in in many ways and sort of unable to or you know unknowing of 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 what to expect and one of my one of the folks i i spoke to who is featured in a, a video uh in this, that is embedded in the story, um, is this ir- Iraqi American woman named Lubab Alkoreshi, and she's a pathologist. Uh, Doctor Doctor Koreshi, I thought she was. She made just some of the most poignant points to me uh, when we spoke about uh, about how she's about the racism that she's encountered here and how it felt. And, and one of those stories, uh, one of the anecdotes from her life was. It, when she first arrived in Houston as a refugee in 2014, going to Walmart with her husband and their family and seeing some woman who started shouting at another shopper, uh, a white woman who started shouting at her um, and saying things, you know, about her headscarf, about right, and telling her you know, she wasn't welcome here to go back to where she came from. And she didn't, though she speaks pretty good English. She didn't really understand it at first. She didn't realize what was happening. And when she told the story at first, told me the story, she said that her sort of de facto automatic response was to just grin at this woman. She just smiled um, and and she in retrospect, you know, she felt stupid about having done that, you know, that, that 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 was her response. And, you know, and, you know, of course, in hindsight, she's come up with all sorts of things that she'd like to say to that woman. Um, <laughs> But, you know, it, I, I thought that story um, told told a lot, you know, in, in, in just sort of the shock of it, she, she just didn't expect it. You know, she's a refugee. She fled um, incredible violence in Iraq. She she left not because not to seek out economic opportunity. Uh in fact, here she can't even work as a pathologist, uh, because she's it's really difficult to be certified on the, the US system. Um, you know, she was a very successful pathologist in Iraq. She left because uh the bombings, the direct threats on her life, on her family became too much, too risky to bear. Uh and then to come here and be told um in her country, uh you know, which which played no small role in destabilizing her own, you know, to be told, uh, go back, you're not welcome here, I think was really shocking for her.
2: You know, one of the things that comes to my mind as I listen to you tell the story, uh, and that is just a heartbreaking story that I've heard too many times. You know, one of my colleagues um, who's Asian um, here at WTOP went to... Um, a grocery store with her daughter right after um, the coronavirus pandemic started. And she got the same treatment in front of her young daughter in a grocery store. Uh, And, you know, that's just that was just the beginning of what turned out to be an incredibly violent year against Asian Pacific Islanders and and people, um, you know, from, you know, different places. And people were attacking them because of their own hatred and anger and Looking at your story here, you talk to a lot of different people. I'm wondering, how do they process what to do about the betrayal, about the anger, you know, about you know what's happening now in their country? Because in in, in Afghanistan, at least, you know, they still have relatives there. They still have concerns there. How are they processing mm-hmm. that? Are they doing that just internally themselves? Or are they doing it in groups? How are they approaching it?
1: Well, it's interesting,
3: you know, and again, I think this comes down a lot to sort of differences in, in character and experience for for Yousafzai, uh Farhad Yousafzai, uh, who I led the story with. He, you know, I think his his automatic go to response is is to be an activist. Um, you know, the past few weeks or, you know, since since really the Taliban started taking control of, of Kabul as the U.S. Uh, withdrew completely. Um he hasn't slept. You know, he spent those early days uh, just trying frantically to get his relatives out of Kabul, um, out of Afghanistan to safety. He was terrified. You know, well before uh, the complete collapse of the government, that you know that they were in imminent danger. Uh, from the Taliban because of his own work for the U.S. government when he was there. Um, And he felt this incredible burden on his shoulders, you know, and and feels it still, you know, as as a U.S. citizen um, and as as an Afghan, you know, that he has this responsibility that, you know, to his family to to save them. Um, And he managed to get, you know, his his mother and his two brothers and their families out on one of the last commercial flights and they're now stranded in Turkey. Uh, his sisters, uh, one of whom, uh, you know, her family was actually targeted in violence uh, because of their association with him. Um, they are still there uh, uh, just in uh, eastern Afghanistan near the Pakistani border. And he's racked with with worry now. And so it, his his sort of go to response in these you know, in the past few weeks has been, uh, to have press conferences, you know, at his insurance office in the first week after the fall of Kabul, he didn't, he didn't do any work. He couldn't concentrate. So he, he spoke to the media, he called members of Congress, he wrote letters, he did everything that he could think to do to try to help his family and other people in his community. Um, you know, other folks, uh, you know, and, and, and throughout that, you know, continues to feel frustrated and angry and scared. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, with Iraqis, I spoke to, uh, you know, I noticed a really interesting difference generationally in this one family. Um, I, I write in my story a lot about a man named Omar El-Tamemi, uh, who is an Iraqi real Iraqi American real estate agent. The Texan.
2: Uh, in, He's a Texan now.
3: He's a Texan. He's, (laughs) he sees himself very much as a Texan.
2: That's a very interesting story too, but please go on.
3: And he, it was interesting listening to him and his son sort of unpack the racism that they've experienced. Um, now in many ways, so his son, who's largely, who is 22 now and has mostly grown up here, um, was almost I don't want to say forgiving of racism but I, I think very determined to be to be Texan to be American this is his identity this is certainly something he feels more strongly connected to than Iraq you know a country that he you know doesn't even remember much of at this point. Um, and so you know when he encountered you know pretty, significant racism as a kid growing up in suburban Dallas. Um, it, one of the most stunning stories that he told me was as a middle schooler, he made the varsity football team. I guess this is a Texan thing where middle school kids can play varsity football. Uh, we didn't have that where I grew up. But <laughs> in any case, he was you know a seventh grader who made the varsity football team. It was the youngest kid. And it, in like this first week of football practice, it was the September 11th anniversary and the football team on that day, instead of having practice, watched a video about September 11th and one of his coaches pulled him aside and said very seriously to him, this is what your people did.
2: I read that. He told, I read that. And that made me angry. <laughs> I, I'll admit it. I was angry when I read that.
3: Yeah. I, my jaw dropped. I, I mean, I, I, you hear, all sorts of stories, obviously like this, but I was still stunned that an adult would say that to a 13 year old boy mm-hmm. um, and <laughs> who was a toddler on 9/11. Um, and uh, and when he told this story, um, Hamza, you know who's 22 now, who's telling me this, you know, he said, oh, he was tried to be dismissive of it. Oh, like it wasn't that big of a deal. I just sort of laughed it off. Uh, And I looked at his father's face as he was telling me this. His father, Omar, um, who is, you know, also has very much embraced being a Texan, is a, you know, votes Republican, you know, and Omar looked very pained by this. Um, His eyes got visibly wet. Um, And I could tell he had heard this story before, but I know I could see how much it hurt him Um, because to him, this was racism and as I think it clearly is to us. And, um, and it pained him that his kid had experienced this. Um, And, and it was actually the, his, you know, the father who, who urged his son to tell me a little more about some of the stuff he had experienced in school Um, such as, you know, kids joking about to him and his brother about them being bomb makers and towel heads and, you know, various other, you know, really racist things tossed at a couple of arab american boys um and and it was interesting that you know for the sons um they were more willing to laugh this off than than the father who who was simultaneously you know uh has has also you know very much embraced his his own Americanism uh, and, and his identity as a Texan and a Republican, um, but was still, I think, more acutely aware and pained by the sort of pair, the paradoxes of the racism that his family encounters.
2: You know, I'm going to encourage everybody to read this piece because aside from the fact that it's just a really well put together piece, it's very visual, it's very descriptive and it is, this 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 is a moving piece. It's called New Americans, and it's written by Abigail Hauslohner. And it just dropped today. Today is September 9th. Um, it's about 2 p.m., but this uh, just dropped today. Uh, and I'm going to e- encourage everybody to read it because it, 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 it puts into context where we are as America right now, um, especially after what's taken place in Afghanistan and other things that have taken place this year. One thing uh, I'd like to ask you a little bit more about, a couple things actually, before we go, Abigail, is you mentioned the refugee resettlement effort is really not up to par for these folks. Um, what's missing from that effort? Uh, what what needs to be done based on what your reporting told you?
3: Well, you know, one of the uh, I think perpetual issues, um, you know, is that this this is resettlement is handled by nonprofits who who work. Uh, in partnership with the US government um they are you know sort of effectively commissioned by the US government to do this work um but you know at, at the end of the day there's always funding issues there's always personnel issues um you know there's there's simply i think not enough resources often you know in hand uh to help people adjust and and, and that is you know that largely what is offered to refugees when they come is know they get assistance for the first several months uh including you know an apartment uh usually you know something very sort of bare bones apartment uh with furniture uh to settle into uh and some help finding you know an entry-level job uh and enrolling their kids in school um but sort of beyond that uh, you know, and it and it also varies place to place. Certain communities, for example, in northern California, where there is a huge Afghan community around Sacramento, there are, I think, a lot more resources in place um, that have grown in part out of that community and, 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 you know, out of officials seeing the needs of the community um, in other places. Uh, you know refugees are really on their on their own after that initial resettlement um and one of the things uh that that people told me about it, are just you know sort of not knowing how to do the basics like how to get a driver's license how to how to just sort of understand um this new world this strange new society that they have suddenly landed in um, and, uh, dr quraishi the pathologist i mentioned she she uh, she had another really sort of poignant example of, of this, um, you know, after the Walmart episode, you know, they had been placed in you know a rundown apartment in Houston and, you know, they didn't have a car. Uh, they didn't really know how to get around, but they had sort of weekly meetings at the resettlement agency uh, to sort of help them get adjusted. And one of those meetings was on, you know, financial sort of fiscal responsibility. And she remembers going to this meeting Um, and, you know, being told, uh, you know, don't, don't you know, you need to be careful with your finances. Don't go to Starbucks every day and buy a latte. And she raised her hand and said, excuse me, what is Starbucks? (laughs) Uh, and, you know, she, she sort of laughed about this and I laughed about it too, because it, it really is an example of, you know, clearly in that case a huge disconnect between the actual needs of this population and, and what they were uh, perceived to to need to understand. Um,
2: Yeah. It's Herculean. There's no doubt about it. I mean, there's so much work to do looking at your story and talking to you about this. There are so many more questions that I have, but uh, we only have a limited amount of time because you've got more work to do today and uh, we're looking forward to your next piece. But, um, What haven't I asked you about um, about this story that you think is important that we should talk about before we go?
3: You you know, I think for me, just the the one thing that I hope that readers take away from it is is just to think about um, all these different populations, all these different individuals beyond New York City, beyond U.S. service members, beyond, you know, all of the different ways that 9-11 rippled out and affected people living in this world and continues to affect people living in this world. Um, and, and, you know, that there are these larger legacies of 9-11 um, that I hope that Americans think more about going forward.
2: Well, Abigail Hauslohner, thank you for taking time to talk with us on Colors about this very important story and the lives of Farhad Yousafzai and Dr. Qureshi and all of the the Tamemis, all of the people that are in this gigantically important story. Thank you for the work, the writing, and uh, the rigor that you put behind the story. I appreciate all of that. Thank you.
3: JJ, thank you so much for bringing me on. Thank you for this conversation.
2: When we continue, a recollection from 9-11, 20 years
0: ago.
1: You're listening to Colors.
0: My name is Albert Takeshi Shimabukuro. I'm a Japanese Okinawan here in the Washington, D.C. area. The 1980s, 1990s, um, I had multiple friends of different ethnicities. I openly said I'm Japanese, didn't know there was a real difference. And um, one specific incident where I had a friendship with a, a Korean family, I met the grandfather uh, a year later. He speaks to me in Korean. I said, I'm sorry, I don't speak Korean. He asked me what my ethnicity was, and I said, I'm Japanese, and then he spits on me. The anger and veracity that he had was, he yelled at his grandkids. He goes, you never play with him again, because he's the one who killed our people. How do you respond to that at you know 13 years old? I left there really upset and try to talk to my parents about that and they just said you know go away don't don't go to them just never see them again and later in high school i meet i see them again and they tell me you know grandpa has this anti-japanese mentality and i realized that a lot of a lot more other asians felt that way too this is colors
1: a dialogue on race in america
2: on september 11th 2001 I made my way to the Voice of America building at 3rd and Independence Southwest in Washington, DC. It's just across the street from the US Capitol. About 8.40 or so that morning, I was in an edit studio working on a video project when someone walked in and said a plane had hit the tower in New York, the World Trade Center. So we all rushed over to a TV set to see what was happening, watching the Today Show while we stood there watching, mesmerized at what took place, we saw another plane crash into another tower. And it was at that point that everybody realized this was not an accident. And I left the room, which was down in the basement of the Cohen building, and went outside and remember seeing so many black SUVs with blue lights just sort of scurrying around it. It seemed haphazard, but I later learned that it wasn't. A part of what was happening is they were trying to secure the line of succession. At that point, uh, I saw smoke in the sky. Somebody said, you know, something's burning across the river. So several of us went up to the roof of the VOA building, and there we could see it. The Pentagon, just thick columns of black smoke billowing into the blue sky. I mean, it had been a picture-perfect day until that moment. Um, This black smoke was just covering starting to fill up the entire vista across the potomac river and i could hear the sirens down on the ground and we later learned that day that the Capitol, which was just across the street not more than a hundred yards was supposed to be the fourth target but the the brave americans who tried to regain control of a hijacked plane prevented the hijackers from reaching the Capitol. The plane crashed in shanksville pennsylvania I can remember leaving the building later that day, everybody was just dazed, but leaving the building later that day, um, going home, Independence Avenue, which at that time of the year is a very, very busy street. September, everybody's back from vacation, Congress is there, and, you know, it's a busy street. There was nobody in the street. There were Humvees, there were troops with automatic weapons, and dogs lining the streets. So... They would not allow us to walk on the sidewalk. We just walked down the middle of the street to go wherever we were going. I was going to the subway, and I can just remember it just being really super eerie. The first thing I did when I got home was put up the American flag. That was all that I knew to do that day, all that I could do. And the grief that just sort of gradually swallowed up all the space around me as the day continued was overwhelming. I can remember thinking of all those people. I can remember the scenes of, forgive me for saying this, but it's true and it needs not to be forgotten, of what we thought were paper floating out of the windows in the upper levels of the World Trade Center, but they weren't. They were people. And I can remember people in the days to come just going back to the building, hoping and praying that their loved ones would be alive, but they weren't. They were were gone. And so everything else that started after that, the Afghanistan war, the Iraq war, and everything else that's brought us to 20 years later, never in my lifetime did I ever think that the Taliban would be back in control again of Afghanistan, and we'd be where we are today. But we are. We don't get to dictate what happens in life. All we get to do is to live it the best we can. And I'm hopeful that's what we do. From this day forward.
1: Coming up in our next episode of Colors.
2: My name is
1: Wendell Osbrook, African American. I grew up in the U Street neighborhood of Washington, D.C., and I'm the business owner of Georgetown Butcher.
2: This is a success story. He grew up in the inner city without a high school education. He started this business during the COVID 19 pandemic. And mind you, he started this business in well-heeled Georgetown.
1: I'm a very optimistic person, so I downplay a little bit, but I'm always looking for something big to happen.
2: Now, he's the toast of the town.
1: That's coming up in our next episode of
2: Colors. Time to go again. Before we go, I want to say thank you. A little different this time. I want to say thank you to all of the victims of 9-11, the people that died that day, the people that have died since then, and the people that will die as a result of what happened on 9-11. And thank you to their families. I will never forget you, and I can't thank you enough, but I will never stop trying. I'm JJ Green. I'm American, and this is Colors. If you have any questions or comments about our podcast, you can reach us at colors at thecolorspodcast.com. That's colors at thecolorspodcast.com.
1: You can subscribe to Colors on Apple, Spotify, Podcast One, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: And you can also find us on the Podcast DC app. And just one final thing. Remember... Keep talking to each other, and just as importantly, keep listening to each other.
1: This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America.